So, if you remember, last week, Elijah just had this amazing experience with God. It's one of the key, most exciting stories in the Bible. Everybody who reads the Bible remembers that story. He challenges 400 false prophets. It's like a duel of the gods. You offer sacrifice to your gods, God, I'll offer sacrifice to mine. Whichever one answers by fire, let him be God. Sure enough, the God of Israel answered with fire, and he had the 400 false prophets executed. He prayed for God to end the drought. The drought ended. You'd think he's at cloud nine. Close to God? God's turning around the religion. There's a revival, or at least it seems like. God hears his words, answers with fire. But the very next thing in the Bible, he gets a message from Jezebel. So you killed 400 of my prophets, you're going to be like one of them tomorrow. And now he's scared. And he flees for his life. I can't say he's scared. Maybe he's just wise, and he flees for his life. You know? But... In my mind, it's like, God, what do you want me to do? I'm good, you know? You just killed 400 of the prophets. You answered by fire. What do you want me to do? I'm not worried. Just tell me what you want me to do. I'm good. But the appearance is he's scared because he definitely flees. And worse than that, he gets depressed. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but looking at it, it looks like clinical depression. He goes to God and just says, you know what? I just want to die. And he falls asleep under a bush. I mean, he's messed up. He goes from here to here. Elijah, the prophet and man of God. Let me give you a little encouragement this morning. Just because you're walking with God doesn't mean you're bad if you get discouraged. Life's hard, people. And sometimes we get down. We do. If Elijah can get down, you don't have to get down on yourself for getting down. And he was really low. Let, let me read to you what happened. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. I mean, he, he fled with at least one friend. Then he left his friend, I think, in Jericho. And then he just went, he said, you stay here. I'm going out by myself. A day's journey into the middle of no man's land. This is like barren desert. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And said, it's enough. I've had enough. Just no more. Take my life. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked. Don't think cake. Just think something baked. It could have been bread or something. The word cake just means fluffy food. A cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. He was so distressed, so discouraged, so depressed, that he sat down under a bush and fell asleep. God had a minister to him. Let me put that another way. God chose to minister to him. So here, the God of the universe decides to minister to this man. Bakes him breakfast! He wakes up. He eats it. He's so exhausted, he just falls back to sleep again. And the angel has to wake him up again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time, touched him. I've never been touched by an angel. I mean, such an insignificant passage of Scripture. That little piece, the angel touched him. I want to be touched by an angel. 
That would be so cool. Hey, Elijah, it's time to wake up. Arise, have some breakfast, because the journey is too great for you. A few things about this. Most commentators I've read said that after Yeshua, and the Bible says this, after Yeshua died, Jesus died, the disciples were like, oh, no, what's going on? They were distressed. They were discouraged. They were confused. They were depressed. Their master, their Messiah, their rabbi, who they thought was going to save them physically, not spiritually, he's dead. The Romans got him. Now what? Well, he came back and revealed himself to them. That was a high moment. But somewhere in that transition, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And some commentators say that was his statement of saying, I'm giving up this whole discipleship thing. I'm giving up the ministry. I've had enough. I'm going fishing. And a couple of the other disciples went with them. So a lot of commentators say this was it. These guys were quitting the ministry. They've had enough. They're done. Kind of like Elijah. And they go off fishing and they don't catch anything. And then somebody on the shore says, hey, have you caught any fish, children? And one of the guys says, it's the Lord. Well, how do you know? I just know. Trust me. Try the other side of the boat. Hey, haven't I heard this before? They threw the net over. Sure enough, ton of fish. They get on shore, and there's the Lord in disguise. Is that him? Is that not him? And it says in the scripture he had bread on coals prepared for them for breakfast. And fish. I don't think it said breakfast. It says bread on coals. So here, Elijah's discouraged and distressed and God sends him the messenger of the Lord to give him breakfast, encourage him, and strengthen him. Here we got the disciples, distressed, going out fishing, and the Lord comes himself and serves them breakfast. I just think it's an amazing thing that the God of the universe would take that kind of care of his people, that he would personally just come and minister to people. It's just an amazing thing. By the way... After he fed them, he took Peter and said, hey, do you love me? Peter said, you know, I, I do. I, I, I like you a lot. He said, feed my sheep. By the way, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you've already asked that. Of course I do. You and I, were like this. We're tight. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Ah, oh, why do you keep asking? Don't you believe me? Of course I do. You know I do. Feed my sheep. And again, the commentators would say, hey, he was quitting the ministry. Jesus was calling him back. Not only that, but he denied the Lord three times before he was crucified. So this is his opportunity to kind of make it up three times. But we're not talking about Peter. We're talking about Elijah. I just wanted to show you the parallels. So Elijah eats. Elijah arose, he ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. 40 days and 40 nights. You know anybody else who didn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights? The Lord himself. And it says he goes in the strength of that food to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. The whole 40 days and 40 nights thing, that's how long Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And then there was a 40 years traveling in the wilderness. So... The author here, the Holy Spirit, 
is trying to get our minds into that frame of reference. We're going back to Sinai, going back to the, the number 40, remembering the wilderness, remembering God. God sent Elijah to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. Why do they call it the mountain of God? Well, because God appeared there. What else are you going to call the place? And he didn't just reveal himself there once. No less than five times did God reveal himself at Mount Sinai in an amazing, remarkable way. Um, the burning bush, he revealed himself to Moses, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. Um, Moses had to go back up there with the elders of Israel, 70 of them, and he appeared. God himself appeared to 70 elders in Israel, of Israel. And then Moses had the whole 40 days up there by himself where he glowed, got the Ten Commandments, the whole cleft of the rock thing, which we'll talk about, and now Elijah. So this is a special place. And Elijah has an appointment there with God. But since this is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, God revealed himself there at least five times. I want to go back to the very beginning, the first time God revealed himself there. I'm asking myself, why is this place so special, and why does God reveal himself here? What's he trying to teach us? So let's look at how he revealed himself and ask what we can learn. Made sense to me. So this is when the children of Israel, right before Passover, the children of Israel are in Egypt. We are slaves. And Moses, who's been in the desert for 40 years as a shepherd, day in and day out, and day in and day out, and day in and day out. How many of you in this room have had the same job for 40 years? Let me see your hands. One, two, three. That's it? Right. Most of us don't even know what that's like. So he was just used to life. Hey, this is another day in the life of a shepherd. I've been doing this. Now he's 80 years old, by the way. You know, I don't know why Social Security hadn't kicked in yet. He should have been retired. So Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. We read these Bible stories because we hear them from this big and we, we get them. But this was new to them. Moses didn't see burning bushes every day of his life. He never ran into God before. He was just a shepherd, just a guy, minding his own business, tending sheep, and he goes like this. What would you do if you saw it? He was just like you. You know, I'm going to go take a... Nobody else to talk to. Hey, Snowflake, do you see that? Am I going crazy? So he sees this bush that's on fire, but not on fire. I mean, it's on fire, but it's not burning. How can something be on fire and not burn? I don't know. I'm going to go take a closer look. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush doesn't burn up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses. Why do I think God sounds that way? <laughs> hey, Moses. Might have been a friendly call, you know? Hey, Mo. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals 
for the place where you're standing is holy ground. All right, so God reveals himself at Mount Sinai for the first time. What does he reveal about himself? Several things. First, I'm going to ask you through a question. It's rhetorical, but if you've been with me for a while, you know the answer. Don't shout it out. Who spoke to Moses from the burning bush? Well, God did, of course. Well, verse 2 says this. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Now, I've told you this before, but, you know, we always have new people, and I have to remind you, that's a bad translation. There really isn't an Old Testament Hebrew word for angel. The word is malach. It just means a messenger. When we hear the English word angel, we automatically get a picture in our head. Probably it's got something to do with halo, wings, and glowing. And then we think, oh, this is some lesser being, some agent of God's that's been dispatched to talk to Moses. That's unfortunate. It doesn't say that. It just says, a messenger of God. That's all we know at this point in the story. A messenger of God spoke to him from within the bush. God sends messengers to his prophets all the time, but there's one messenger that is called the messenger of God and also called the word of God. And you'll read about him in the Old Testament. It'll say, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so saying, go to king such-and-such and tell him, oh, God is mad at you, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So those being called God's word. Imagine what, the, what does that mean? How can you be called God's word? What, what is that? A word is something you hear, isn't it? Or a message. But this guy, this being is called God's word. The word of God. That's interesting. I give you my word. What does that say then that he's called God's word? The promise of God? The amen of God? Well, we don't know because we're just seeing this for the first time. And I want you to jump back into my life, not being raised in any kind of a church. And in the synagogue, when you go to Hebrew school, you don't study the scriptures. You learn about culture and history. So I saw this for the first time as a young Jewish boy. And I'm like, what is going on here? Who's in the bush? Because verse 2 says the messenger of the Lord, but verse 3 says this. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look... God called to him from within the bush. So who's in the bush? I'm thinking this is a busy bush. We got, we got the angel of the Lord in there. We got God in there. We got the bush in there. Who knows who else is in there? So I'm asking myself, what's going on here? It looks like God is the messenger of the Lord, and yet it's not the messenger of the Lord. It, I didn't understand it. I just knew something interesting was going on here when I first read it. Something about the word, angel of the Lord, and the Lord being the same, I don't understand. Before we explain, I want to go back to Elijah. Okay? Elijah is now being brought to Horeb. Here's how his journey happens. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So this is no normal angel touching him. This is the word of the Lord again. So he rose, he ate and drank. He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. He spent the night in that place. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So the word of the Lord is a he that speaks to people. I believe it's the same as the messenger of the Lord, just called messenger here, the word there, angel mistakenly in the English. And he says, why are you here? All right, so who is this word of the Lord? Rabbis talked about him all the time. Philo, great Jewish philosopher, wrote about him. I read some of the stuff he said about him. It's almost the same as what's written in the book of John. Listen to what John says about the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. How can you be with God and God at the same time? I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, it's the way it is. I'm one of those kind of people who doesn't believe something somebody tells me if I can't figure it out. Unless it's God. Then I can believe it. Because he's a lot smarter than I am. Most people can explain to me what they're thinking, and I'll get the explanation. Uh, okay, if it's quantum physics and high math, maybe not. <laughs> Anything else, I'm pretty sharp. If you can explain it to me, I can get it. If you can believe it, I can believe it. See, what happens is people will say stuff, I just don't believe them. I'll give you a silly example. You get mad at me later if you want. I don't care. It's just me. So are you going to give your son this shot? No. Why not? We recommend it. Well, yeah, and I just read a major article that says this shot helps 50% of the pop people who get it. It's a coin toss. It may or may not help. I'm talking, by the way, about the flu shot. Major article says half the people get it, it doesn't help. And I'm thinking, how do they even know? I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, yeah, they've got the flu. I said, what happened? Well, I got the flu shot. It made you sick? Yeah but not as sick as I would have gotten. <laughs> so here's what I know. Major research says half the people get it, it doesn't help, and most of the people I know get it, get sick anyway. Yeah, sign me up. I'm in. You know, well, you might get the flu. Yes, I might. And besides, what else is in that needle? What is that junk? Oh, it's perfectly harmless. Yeah, but... You know, I watch TV, and there's always lawsuits about perfectly harmless drugs all the time. FDA-approved drugs, and now we're suing for billions of dollars because everybody's dying from them. They're all perfectly harmless. No thanks. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm too smart for my own good. But I just look at the evidence, and I make a decision based on what I know. And I don't want that shot. And that's not the only shot that they're trying to push on us. They were trying to give my son a shot. Not necessarily for his benefit, but for everybody else's benefit. What? Well, see, if he gets this shot, then he won't get this disease, and then he can't give that disease to somebody else. What? You want me to give him a shot to protect somebody he may meet down the road someday that may end up getting the disease he doesn't have but might get? Yes, that's what we recommend. No, thank you. <laughs> I'll pass. So I came to this passage of Scripture, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, by the time I got to 1 John, I was already a believer. 
I went through a process of becoming a believer. But by the time I'm in 1 John, I'm already a believer. So I believe this. I don't get it, but I believe it. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What I love about this New Testament passage is it helps me understand all those confusing passages in the Old Testament that I read as a non-believer and then as a believer. In other words, that stuff didn't make sense. He was in the world, the Word. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what's this saying? This is saying that the word became flesh, Jesus. So who's Jesus? A lot of people who are raised in the Jewish culture think that we believe a man became a god and that we worship a man who became a god because he was such an awesome man. But that's not what we believe. I would never believe that. People can't become gods. That's crazy. That's idolatry. But if God is up in heaven, looks down upon man and says, wow, they need some help. I'm going to go down there and help them out in human form. That I can understand. That's what's going on here. So this word of the Lord who ministers to Elijah brings him breakfast, later became flesh, and brought breakfast again to Peter and the crew. This is, it, it, it's consistent. It's what he does. He ministers to people. In fact, he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to lay down my life a ransom for many. God the Father and the Word are a unity. They are one. So, back to my days as a young Jewish man, not a believer, picking up the Bible for the first time and reading these words in the very first chapter of the Jewish Bible. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you know what I did? I went, Mom! Read that. God said, let us make man after our likeness. Who's us, Mom? I don't know. Maybe it's the angels. I said, then the angels made people? No, it says God made us. And then it says he in his own image. It went to plural to singular. Who's us? She said, I don't know. Well, I know now, but I didn't know then. God's a trinity. We've talked about the Father. We've talked about the Word, who's later called the Son. And some other day, maybe we talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't really have time to get into that. But this is cool. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is the key piece of Jewish liturgy in all the world. It's called the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Here's what it says. Hear, or listen, Israel. Pay attention to what I'm about ready to tell you. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why in the world would you bother saying something like that unless you had a reason to think he wasn't? And what's really cool about it, it says the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. So when I started to see these things, you know, things started to click. So what do we learn from Mount Sinai? First thing I learned from Mount Sinai was God's a unity. God is one. He's a chad. But that's not all we learned from Mount Sinai. You see this diagram, by the way? It's, a, it's an amazing diagram to get the point across. You can't see the words from where you're sitting. But let me tell you what you got there. You got the triangle. Each point of the triangle, one says Father, one says Son, one has, says Holy Spirit. So Father, Word, Holy Spirit. In the middle it says God. So it goes to the middle, it says the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. God is one. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that circle around, which connects Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there it says is not. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So it's a good theological diagram of who and what God is. So we learn about his unity, but there's another lesson in there. We also learn about his holiness. God told Moses, don't come any closer and take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Holiness signifies in part that God should be honored and respected, and it also signifies that God is not approachable, at least not totally. I mean, think about it. God chose to leave heaven, come to earth, to reveal himself to Moses. Got his attention. So Moses comes near and God says, that's close enough. Oh, you took this big journey to meet with me. Why can't I come any closer? I'm, so, I'm sure there's lots of reasons why. But... Uh, there's a blast radius right there. God put up the force field. And if Moses got any closer, he would have been vaporized. That's my take on it. You can't get close to God. God is, he radiates power. He radiates glory. And just like a bug in a zapper, if we get too close, we get zapped. Not because God is bad, but because he's awesome. And us, not so much. We can't handle it. So Moses wants to get a better look, and God says, ah, that's as close as you can get. God's not totally approachable, yet he reaches out to humans. I mean, that's why he's there. He's there to be approached as close as we can possibly get. And he's there to do something. He's not there just to introduce himself. He's there to deliver the children of Israel from bondage. So he comes from heaven, comes to earth, calls Moses by name, ministers to him, but won't let him get too close. So I learn from the burning bush passage about God's unity. I also learn about God's holiness, and a little more subtly, but just, just as there, I learn about his love and his mercy and his grace. That's why he's there. Why else would he show up? He's there to bless people and minister to them. So it's subtle, but it's, it's obvious once I point it out. I love his love, his grace, his compassion. By the word grace isn't a word we use much today. Um, the, the best definition I heard about grace is when you get something you don't deserve. And mercy, when you don't get something you do deserve. <laughs> On the opposite side. So even though 
here at the burning bush, I indirectly see God's love, grace, mercy, compassion. I told you he revealed himself at Mount Sinai at least five times. And on one of those times, he actually explains who he is. These are the words he uses. It was Moses, another day. He comes back, and Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. <laughs> Read between the lines. Didn't we already have this talk? You can't. You get too close, you'd be vaporized. You can't see me. Nobody can see me and live. But God says, here, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. You'll be surrounded by solid granite. Then I will protect you, and I will pass by. And right when I'm almost out of sight, I'll remove my hand so you can get a glimpse of my afterglow. That's how awesome God is. That all Moses could handle was just a brief glimpse of his afterglow. Well, while the Lord was passing by Moses, he was explaining to Moses who he was. This is what he said. The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I'll talk about the rest in a moment. We've been going through the story of the kings and how the children of Israel are being blessed by God unlike any people have ever been blessed, and yet the kings and then their followers start worshiping idols and betraying God and turning their back on God. The God that is blessing them, they're turning their back on him and worshiping idols. And what does God do about it? You'd think he'd smite them on the spot. That's the God I thought ruled the heavens, but I was mistaken. The God that rules the heavens, gracious, abounding in love, slow to anger, faithful, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. While they're rebelling against God, while they are praying to their idol, while they're sinning, God gives them their next breath. That's God. But God is also not going to turn his back on sin. He's just, too. And you can't be just and allow these things to go undealt with. So the very next thing it says, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the fourth, third and fourth generation. A couple things I need to point out about that. Notice it says he loves thousands, punishes to three or four of the generations. So he blesses to thousands, but only punishes to three or four. That means his mercy is way bigger than his justice. Mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment, the Bible says. So his love is bigger to us than his wrath. But you're thinking, why does he punish children? That's not fair. Well, first of all, it's not children. It's descendants. Okay, so don't let that word throw you. And secondly, here's what I see when I follow this story in the Bible. If there's a wicked king, God says, okay, I'm going to destroy you and your kingdom for your wickedness. Then the king rebels, uh, repents. God says, okay, I'll put it off to the next generation. If the next generation is good, he puts it off to the next generation. If the next generation is good, he puts it off to the next generation. But if the next generation is bad, chances are they're even worse than the previous generation, and that's when he visits the iniquity. 
God doesn't punish innocent people. He's just, he puts it off, is what he's saying. Even in his wrath, he puts it off. God is just merciful and gracious. He's good. We see this with Rehoboam, the first king after the divided kingdom. God says, because you went to idolatry, and I'm going to destroy you and your kingdom. I'll put it off to the next generation. Because Rehoboam repented. So what do we learn about God at Mount Sinai? We learn of his unity. We learn of his holiness. We learn of his love. And we learn that even though Moses couldn't get close, God was reaching out. Really, that's the same way it is today. We can't get close to God. A lot of you are saying, Steve, I'm a Christian, and I love God with all my heart, and I pray, and he answers my prayers. Yes, he does, from afar. But I feel him. Great. Imagine what you're going to feel when you're in heaven. God is distant, even from his highest of high prophets. Moses, that's close enough. And us, I'd long for a touch. I'd love a burning bush experience. But God doesn't just pass those out like candy. Here a little, there a little. To great men of God, great humble men of God, when he's ready to change the world, not just to make me feel better about my spirituality. I know the day will come, don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to it. But let's be realistic. God is distant. But he still reaches out through answered prayer, through those feelings we sometimes get, through the miracles we see. By the way, how many of you have ever seen or experienced a miracle? Can I see your hands, please? Wow, probably 80, 90% of the congregation's hands have gone up. Yeah, God reaches out. He's still there. But I want to get closer. David slew the giant. He was king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a prophet. And this is what he says. As a deer pants for a brook of water, so I long after you, O God. David said, I want closer. And he couldn't have it. God came to Moses and delivered Israel. He's gracious, good, and forgiving. But he won't clear the guilty. He's willing to forgive. He wants to forgive. Those who repent, he will forgive. But those who don't, he will not clear the guilty. God sent his angel, his messenger, his word to deliver Israel. And then he sent his word to deliver us because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. God's reaching out right now. Every time you hear the story of Jesus, God's reaching out. He's made us his messengers, his ambassadors. We're Elijah today. We're Moses today. And it's our job to share the love of God with other people. You have an opportunity to make a decision to follow the God of Israel and believe in his son. And I would encourage you to do that. Um, our prayer room will be open right after services if you'd like to pray with somebody, uh, maybe to invite the Lord into your life, or just maybe you just need prayer for something else. The prayer room is there for you. His love and forgiveness, they're new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Please join me in prayer. 
Lord God, thank you for showing us through Elijah and Moses a little bit about who and what you are through Yeshua and Peter. And Lord, I feel like Moses and Peter and David, I would like to get closer to you. Any which way you can draw us closer to you. Please help us to be faithful, humble, and obedient. And use us, Lord, even as you used Elijah and Moses and David and Peter. And forgive us, Lord, even as you forgave Moses, Elijah, David, and Peter. Help us to, to find comfort and joy and strength in your great mercy and compassion and graciousness. And please give us opportunities to tell our loved ones about you. Please open their minds, their hearts. We don't want any of them lost, Lord. Do what you need to do and help us do whatever you would have us do to bring as many people with us when we enter your kingdom. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.